Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Did you know that over 95% of all businesses fail within the first 10 years? By listening in to what Bob's guests have to say, plus direction from Bob Pritchard himself, it's our intention that you won't be among those statistics. Now, here's your host, Bob Pritchard. Hello, world. Welcome to the 355th episode of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business Channel. We're broadcasting in this eighth year across the world from our studio on Hollywood Boulevard in Los Angeles, where the weather is very hot and we are totally surrounded by fires right throughout California. And just 3,000 miles away, New York, it's teeming rain. Last week, we discussed whether Paul or John wrote the best Beatles songs. Harvard researcher Mark Glickman and Jason Brown, a professor of mathematics, have used data and algorithms to determine whether John Lennon or Paul McCartney wrote some of the Beatles' most memorable songs between 1962 and 1966. Boy, did this start a firestorm of discussion. My, um, my Facebook, um, phones, emails, <laughs> absolutely bombarded. So what I've concluded was that Beatles fans are passionately loyal to whoever their favourite Beatle is and uh, everybody's claiming uh, credit for the same songs despite the fact that science proves that uh, one or the other wrote the songs. However, it was very interesting. Now, speaking of Facebook, it looks like people's obsession with Facebook might be fading Facebook now seems likely to be overtaken by YouTube as the second biggest website in the US. The market research firm SimilarWeb said Facebook's monthly visits had fallen from 8.5 billion two years ago to 4.7 billion. That's almost a 50% drop, while YouTube has been quietly edging up and they hit 4.5 billion visits last month. So they're right on their tail and Facebook is falling. Facebook, um, though, while they're losing a lot of views on Facebook, its portfolio is growing on the back of its apps and other platforms like Instagram. Facebook, as you know, probably had, had the biggest share price nosedive in Wall Street history. They had $16 billion wiped off their share price in one day. They had a, they've got a shareholder revolt. There's moves right now to have Mark Zuckerberg replaced. There's um, another round of election meddling with Facebook in the middle. And they barred a notorious conspiracy theorist only after a rival had acted, and that's received heaps of negative publicity. So it's been a cataclysmic couple of weeks for Facebook. Now, according to a study by Similar Web, Facebook's likely to lose its place as the second biggest website in America to YouTube imminently, probably in the next two months. So then YouTube will be the runner-up to Google um, in visits. Now, there were signs of flattening in Facebook's second quarter earnings in July when it was revealed that overall monthly active users in the US and Canada were flat at 241 million, and it also lost a million users in Europe. But while the main website may be shedding traffic, Facebook's network, including Instagram, WhatsApp, and Messenger, is actually growing in total. 
use of the Facebook mobile app is also increasing. Facebook's focused not just on growth for their main site, but rather on expanding their entire ecosystem. As Facebook noted in its earnings, 2.5 billion people, a third of the world's population, now use at least one of Facebook's products every month. Now, YouTube has established itself as the primary entertainment information source for the younger generation and has benefited from a growing openness among consumers to video. Google remains the biggest website in the US with 15.2 billion monthly visits. That's nearly three times Facebook. So they're unlikely to get anywhere close anytime soon. And Amazon's now pulled in front of Yahoo, which is also pretty extraordinary. So the market's now beginning to really shake out, and there's a lot more seriously big changes to come. Now, do you get my monthly my monthly, what am I talking about? Do you get my daily 30-second read business newsletter? We've now got about one point, nearly 1.8 billion daily subscribers, one of the biggest in the world. It takes just 30 seconds to read, and every day we tackle a different subject. We tackle things from new technology to Hyperloop to autonomous cars to blockchain, and today's newsletter is about the Chinese electric vehicle Byton which is a fabulous-looking car. You know, why is it that um, Byton and Tesla are really cool-looking vehicles, both inside and out, compared to traditional vehicles? Why is that? Can't anybody at BMW or Mercedes design anything? The, wait until you see the new Byton. It is very cool. So to keep abreast of all new developments in business and technology – and ensure that you're able to compete in the ever-changing competitive world we're in, you must get the Bob Pritchard newsletter. And to do it, just go on to my website, bob at bobpritchard.com, and simply enroll. It'll take you about 30 seconds. And then if you wish to unsubscribe at any time, then simply click unsubscribe on the newsletter and you will be gone. Um, seriously, though, we get about, um, I suppose, a couple of hundred new subscribers every week, I would guess, and uh, in the last two weeks, we've had one unsubscribe, so we're getting 100 to 1 subscribers. Now, in the United States and elsewhere, you need a high credit score to get a reasonably priced loan, to rent an apartment, to get a phone, or even get the electricity connected. If you haven't got a good credit rating, you're screwed. And it's extremely easy to drive your score down by making a late payment or having too high a balance on a credit card, but it's damned hard to improve your score once it goes down. Now, a score of 750 or more in the US is considered good, not great, just good, 750, and less than 40% of people have a score of 40, 750 or more. Now, I get um, emails a couple of times a month from Credit Karma updating my status, and its base it seems to be based largely around the balance on my sole credit card that I got from Chase Bank umpteen years ago, forever. And despite my assets and bank balances and other possessions, my credit score can fluctuate up to 40 points depending on one lousy credit card. So the question is, how can I improve my credit score? 
note that the perfect score is 850, and apparently some people have it. I don't know anyone, but and I don't know how the hell you'd get that score, but it means you would never, ever have to miss a payment ever in your life, and you'd always have to have a credit card at zero. So how anybody does that, I have no idea. But it's important to note that credit scores and credit reports are two totally different things and shouldn't be confused. Your score is a tool that's used to represent the information in the credit report. So if you take care of your credit report, you'll have good credit scores. In order to alter your credit score, you need to identify the things that you're doing wrong and fix them. But I bet you most of it's to do with your credit card. The credit emails that I get a couple of times a month say there's a limited number of accounts on your report. Well, I've got the normal bills that I pay every month, like, um, and I'm never late, ever. Internet, gas, electricity, water, car, fuel, insurance, and all those things. I pay them, always pay them on time. But it seems that my one credit card is the fly in the ointment. Now, getting another credit card in order to increase your credit score is not as productive as you might think. So applying for another credit card may improve your utilization rate, which can influence your score. For example, if I've got $1,000 on my credit card and I owe 300, my utilization rate is 30%. And that probably works against you. So if you get approved for another card with the same limit and you've still got $300 on the card, on both cards combined, your utilization rate drops to 15% because you're spreading it over two cards. So that all makes sense. And the lower number makes you seem more responsible, so the score gets a boost. So if it's at 30%, your score goes down. But if you've got 30% over two cards, <laughs> then you're only really 15% and your score should get a boost. The problem is that the algorithm also takes into account how long you've had the credit card and the credit line. So opening, opening a new card actually shortens your average age of credit history and lowers your credit score. So what if you increase the limit on your, credit card, on your current card, which will also result in lower utilization? So if you've got 300 bucks on a $1,000 limit, and you increase your limit to 2,000, and you still only keep it at 300, your utilization drops to 15%. So you'd think that would work too. Wrong. It just isn't that easy. Your lender could treat the increase as a new hard inquiry. And because having hard inquiries on a credit report may indicate the borrower's looking for quick money, that also hurts your score. Credit scores also vary depending on the company preparing it. You need to do it with Experian, you get one, one score. You do it with TransUnion, you get a different score. And so the reality is that once you're above a lender's threshold, which is usually around 750, it doesn't matter if your score is one point higher or 50 points lower. So if you're going out for credit, if you've got a score of 751, you're probably going to get pretty much the same deal as somebody that's got 800. Not quite, but almost. So what's the key to getting a better credit score? The key is to keep paying bills promptly 
and you've got to closely monitor your credit reports. Make sure you get those credit reports and you can get them for free on sites like annualcreditreport.com. You got that? Annualcreditreport.com. I get mine a couple of times a year and I go through them and there's always mistakes in it. Always. So you fix those mistakes and you'll improve your credit score. If you don't fix them, your credit score, you'll never fix your credit score. So that's the tip. In the last couple of weeks, I've interviewed two entrepreneurs in Ireland and I'm speaking to my next guest today in London. So the Bob Pritchard Radio Show is really international. But it's interesting that... um, There's such activity with entrepreneurs in the United Kingdom. And it also shows that entrepreneurs from across the world want to be on this show. My guest today is Sue Jauncey from a company called Pulse. And they've designed a psychological-based organizational culture system which supports organizations to work collectively through culture focused on performance improvements to achieve the shared and common goals which are aimed to meet the organisation goals. And they've had phenomenal success, extraordinary. She's in England because she's working with the NHS, which is the National Health System, which is humongous, as you can imagine. It is just a giant organisation with hundreds of thousands of employees and um, and it's, it, you know, the health area is one that we really need to improve. The company's been so successful, it's grown from a small boutique consulting business to a global company. Now, I'll be back with Sue, live from London after this short break on the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. And we're being broadcast across the world this week from the technology and entertainment hub of the world, Los Angeles, California. I'm Bob Pritchard, and I'll be back in just a minute. Do you want your business to achieve results you never thought possible? Bob Pritchard is recognized as the business leader's advisor and has 30 years of experience as a straight-talking troubleshooter for Fortune 500 companies and SMEs across the world. Whether you need a checkup across all departments of your business or simply want to improve marketing, advertising, performance measurement, or some other area, Bob Pritchard will work his magic so you can blow away your competition. Bob Pritchard is also one of the most in-demand speakers in the world. Over 1,500 clients on five continents and countless standing ovations are a testament to how he changes the fortunes of business. Pick up Bob's new book, Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, at your nearest bookstore or visit Bob's website at www.bobpritchard.com. Remember, if you want to be successful, call Bob Pritchard now. Worldwide phone numbers and more information can be found at bobpritchard.com. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking Radio Show. Over the last six years, seven years really now, we've given you insights into the lives of somewhere around 350 of the world's most interesting business people. We've spoken to them about what it is they do, what inspired them to do it, the challenges that they faced, 
And we try to work out at the end of the day what it is that makes them tick. Because only about 3% of new businesses are successful. So what do those 3% of people do that the other 97% don't do? And uh, so that's why it's important that we listen to interviews like this one and any other interviews with successful people you can get a hold of, read books by successful people, just so that you have a better idea of the things that um, work and don't work. The aim of this segment is to assist you to become more successful. Now, my guest today, Sue Chauncey, is a registered psychologist who began a career working across the Australian prison system from the outside. She wasn't on the inside of the prison system. This experience, although she'd probably look good in stripes, this experience enabled her to gain a deep understanding of human behaviour and the effects of everyday decision-making processes, motivation and readiness for individuals to receive insights and desire for change. Sue was recruited by the global organisation Anderson to head their human capital division. During a time with Anderson, she travelled globally to further her training and research in board management and organisational measuring, monitoring and influencing of performance improvements through behavioural strategy. It's the quality of the board and the management and the organisation and everybody being on the same page, having a great corporate culture. They're the things that are important and they're also the things that are very difficult to do. So um, Sue's experience work, working with boards, executive teams and whole of organisations, both for public, both for public, private, <laughs> both for, for public, private, not-for-profit, government and cooperative organisations. She's the founder and director of Pulse Global. Now I'll get her to explain this is about, but the company's grown from a small boutique consulting business to a global company. It's interesting because the last two weeks I've spoken to entrepreneurs in Ireland, two totally separate entrepreneurs both in Ireland, and I'm talking to Sue today in England. Hi, Sue. Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. You are being heard all around the world. Well, thank you, Bob, and it's lovely to be talking with you again. So we talk about corporate culture and culture in general. What the hell is culture? Who defines it? Is my culture different than your culture? And what is it? What are the parameters of culture? Bob, let's keep the conversation simple. I think part of the issue is we try to overcomplicate these topics and in, in the overcomplication of it, we lose sight of, of what the real issues are and what we need to be addressing. So for the, for the benefit of this conversation, I'm going to say culture is something very simple. It's just the way we do things around here. Um, we don't need any other intellectual, academic applications to what this is because what we find is the, the simplest way you can explain things or, or talk to issues, the more powerful the outcomes because we can chunk this down psychologically so people can understand things and then it's easier for them to think about, reflect and, and apply. But if we, if we talk about culture, Bob, uh, I think the thing that interests me most of all is, um, is considering, if you like, 
people haven't looked at culture and the ramifications of the things that we have done in organisations and does it actually work to promote a happy, healthy workplace and, and what, what does constitute a happy, healthy workplace to begin with, I don't think we have explored all the ramifications of this or really understood you know, what it means to get people working together. So, so culture for us is, well, for one thing, it's, it's not a choice, Bob. You get two people together and you have a culture. Culture is not something you choose whether you're going to have or not. You're going to have one. The choice is, do you want a culture that just morphs by all the different conversations or the team building or things that we do in the organisation? Or do you want to intentionally develop a culture as a strategy for the business that helps you achieve the purpose or the outcome or the reason, you know, that you're there. And I think we need to look at this from a psychological perspective to understand what it actually takes for people to work together. Can I ask... And, and it bothers me that we... Yep. Can I ask you a question? <clears throat> you say culture is the way we do things around here. Is there... I guess there's yes. a... There's obviously a right way and a wrong way if you're successful or not successful. But if you take two companies like, say, IBM, enormously successful over a long period of time, and Tesla, enormously successful, short period of time, you could argue that no two companies could have different cultures. I mean, absolutely, totally different cultures. So is there a... A culture that works and a culture that doesn't, or a cult how does that work? It, it's not so much about a culture that works or a culture that doesn't. It's about and and yes, it's about being clear though. So let's just step back a, a moment. It, you know, Tesla or IBM or whatever you have, a culture has developed as an outcome of the way people have behaved inside the organisation. Yep. So you can still have success in an organisation, but are you happy, uh, one, with the way people have behaved? So let's, let's look at their banking organisation. They've been very successful, but have people been happy with the way people have behaved? Are people happy themselves inside the organisation? So I, I don't think the question is about, you know, you can be successful. The question is, do companies want to be successful and do they also want to be successful and be able to showcase to the world uh, the culture that they have developed that has not only provided uh, financial and commercial success, uh, but it provided uh, success in terms of the, uh, what the people inside the organisation have achieved. And, and in respect to that, Bob, no matter how successful a company is, this is what we can say. Uh, no matter how successful the company is, the better the culture is. So the more your people are collectively aligned to achieve what the shared and common goals are of the organisation, you will be even more successful. So the degree to which you are aligned to achieve those collective goals is the degree to which you will be successful. Right. So it doesn't matter if does that make sense? It doesn't matter yeah, it if does. you're successful now. If you had a culture that was collectively aligned together, it would be even more successful. But there's something else you need to know about this. This is what we want people to know. Depending on how you operate with inside the organisation and culturally, actually makes a difference on 
the opportunities that you can recognize and see. So if you've got a culture where it's all about personalization and what's going to happen to me and the value of me and people don't treat me well and I'm stressed and I'm anxious and I'm all those things, it's a cognitive blocker from being able to see the different sorts of opportunities that are available to you. But if you're working in an organization where you take the focus off the personal self and you work collectively together and you're heading towards a purpose, and the people get to feel a sense of achievement around what they are doing together and a sense of connection, then the opportunities you will see, so the psychology and the physiology of this is, you will see different things in the world and different opportunities of what you can do and create that without this, you would not see. You cannot cognitively recognise. There's also a big shift out there, isn't there, in the marketplace uh, where particularly with the younger generation, the um, millennials, etc., they want to do business with corporations that do have a good corporate culture, that are that where people are happy and where they are um, doing good in the community. I'm thinking of people like you know the Patagonias and to a large degree the Starbucks and people like that. People um, gravitate to people to companies that do have good corporate cultures. Yes. Look, and again, I would take it a, a level beyond, I guess, what, what you're presenting here. So I think the millennials are more about they want to feel that sense of achievement. So where, uh, the children, they've been grown up in environments where parents have said to them, you can be anything you want to be. Yep. Okay, so they're, they're out there in the world saying, I can do what I want and I can create what I want. So if you put them inside a, a culture where it's one of learned helplessness or it's one where it has, you know, really strong restrictions around you, of course they're not going to stay. But yeah. if you put a millennial in a, an organisation where it's about, when I said previously, about it's all about the sense of achievement that you feel. So what they're really looking for is they all have different focus in life in terms of what floats their boat, you know, so to speak. Yeah. But it is the achievement that they're looking for. And now, Bob, that's a human universal. It's not just in the millennials. It's just that the millennials uh, can recognise more easily that I want to feel like I'm achieving something because that's the learned behaviour. They have grown up to be told you can be anything you want to be. So they want to feel that sense of achievement around what they're doing. Whereas some cohorts before that, it was around, you know, uh, don't speak up or, you know, whatever the case may be. And it was more of a learned helplessness type cohort that we had inside the organisation, do as I tell you to do. Yeah. So when we look at the millennials, what they're looking for, am I working in a workplace where I can contribute and I go home feeling like I have a sense of achievement around what I've done? That's yep. what, that is what the basic universal human need is about that you have to have you know, in an organisation to be able to achieve those things. Now, what we need to be careful about is that we're not taking the, uh, the millennials though and overlaying that with a sense of personalisation in there, where even the millennials, or anyone for that matter then, are saying it has to be done my way and, and the focus is on self, that still isn't going to work for the millennials. It's got to be outside of what you think self needs and over to the collective of what can we create collectively to achieve these goals. And that's what the millennials love. They love the team, they love the connection, they love the fact that uh, just give me a space where I can be creative and we can achieve and we keep building because for them, there is no limitation. What's the, um, what's the level of realisation 
amongst boards and management that they really need to get everyone in the company on the same page with something that they can believe in and something that they can all strive towards? It's Or are they more concerned with my next quarter's um, numbers? It's nowhere where it needs to be yet. So there's a lot of conversation, as you well know, around culture. Yep. But they haven't, they haven't really focused or asked the right questions around it yet. So yes, whilst they're first, you know, whilst they're still focused on what's my next quarter result going to be, and I don't blame them in a way, Bob. Let's look at, you know, over the last 20, 30 years, people have come in and said we we'll work on your culture and we're going to do some team building and we're we're going to, you know, do some focus groups and things like this. And and the C-suite turn around and go, but I haven't seen any real change in behaviour and it hasn't actually changed the performance and everything is still the same. So I do not see the value in investing, you know, in this sort of. But nor were we asking the right questions and nor were we looking at what we needed to look at to get a workforce to be able to work to achieve, you know, that sense of achievement that I'm, that I'm talking to. So we've been our own worst enemies in terms of, you know, how, we've, how we have enabled the workforce or harnessed the workforce. And don't ever underestimate the power of the people and what they will do. So let me just look at something for a minute. They don't see the value in it. And one of the ways we can demonstrate this is currently you, you talk to organisations about how much they invest in their, um, their IT, their you know, technical solutions and all the, all the technology yep. solutions. And the companies, it's nothing to spend $20 million because they think if they put a good um, technical solution in place or a technology solution, then that the people are going to follow that and that's just going to solve all the issues around what they need to achieve. Uh, but mind you, it's the people that still have to follow or, you know, adhere to those processes, if you like. But, right. uh, so then when we ask, so how much did you actually invest in your people? It's normally less than 1% of that value, if at all. So why is it that we say we value our workforce, but we invest, we don't invest in them in the same way as we invest in other, you know, the technology? And that is because, Bob, we do not understand it and we do not how to harness it because if if organisations and the leaders, if they knew and they were confident and certain of what they were going to get by harnessing the power of the workforce, they wouldn't think twice about investing in it. Okay, well, let's, let's just talk about Pulse... For a moment, so I've got a I've got a corporation, and I'm concerned that um, the corporate culture is not as good as it could be, and we've got a, a reasonably high turnover of staff, and you know we're not we're not capitalising on on um, on our people. We call you, we call we call Pulse, and we say, what can we do? How do you how do you go about? Okay. How do you go about changing our – how do you determine what the situation is now? How do you determine um, what it is that you need to change it to and how the hell do you go about doing that? Okay. So I guess the first thing we do, and, and given I am a psychologist, I go in and I profile the organisation as if it was a person. So what, right. what is the profile that we're dealing with anyway? So what are the issues? So, you know, we do that first, put that to one side, and then you understand the profile – but we need to understand we do not go in to try to change the people. We don't try to change their cultures. We don't try to change their belief system. We certainly don't, you know, change the diversity that you've got around there. What we do do is say if the organisation wants to achieve X, 
What would you need your workforce to be doing to achieve that? So in the days when I was working with offenders and we had all the different cultures in the one room that we needed to deal with, very discrete different cultures, we didn't try to change the culture or the belief. We just took a few simple key things and said, if you were all coming and, and working towards this goal with the different cultures and belief systems that you have, how would you do that? How would you achieve it? And it's actually quite profound watching people, when you ask the right questions and watching what people will do to come up and, and achieve this. So at the time when I was working with the offenders, um, before working with them, they, the biggest part of their day, the excitement was how many fights they got into at the morning tea break. Versus when we started to get them to talk together about how they would achieve these goals together, it was quite phenomenal what they came up with and how these people started working together and they did not have to change their belief system or their culture. You know, the thing is, the thing is this, Bob, this is not a big complex model. The simpler it is, the better. You put in some key things, like one of the most important behaviours to have everyone working to across an organisation is just doing what you say you're going to do. Can you imagine if you worked in an organisation where everyone followed through and actually did what they said they were going to do? Do you think that would make a difference? Absolutely. So what, what, did, what did you achieve okay. inside the prison system? Uh, the, the work in the prison system, was a, that was about renormalising and re-socialising people back into the community. So you would actually get the feedback. Now, there was some issues, Bob, though, in terms of the system and the way it was set up, because we would work with offenders inside the organisation, inside the prison, I beg your pardon, and, um, but then they were released back out into the community, and once they were released back out into the community, the same stimulus was there that was always there before, which had them offending in the first place. Sure. Okay? So when you would work with offenders, we would say, the offenders would say to us, when you're here, we think that our life could be different, and then when you go away you know, all the old stimulus comes in and we default back to the way we behave. That's what actually happens inside organisations. You keep defaulting back, you know, to what the, uh, the culture of the organisation had been. But the offenders, what we had said to the system at the time is rather than building bigger, better prisons, you actually need to tackle the stimulus that's in the community that has people offending. And everyone needs to take accountability for that. You know, and what we're doing. By the way, that little word accountability plays a big part of what we do because when you look at the factors that make up a sense of self-worth in a person, there's, there's many different things. But two of the biggest factors are if you are going to feel a sense of achievement or connection, one of the basic foundational platforms that you need to have is people need to be held accountable. If they are held accountable for something and they know they've got clarity of purpose around what that accountability is, they perform better. They have a higher sense of self-worth. They produce more. They're more creative. They follow through. They're more responsible. Now, the accountability piece is really interesting in the way we live today because a lot of the uh, different um, systems if you have you know that we have don't hold people accountable and if you if you don't hold people accountable when you're trying to make change they're going to default back to their normal pattern so imagine sure. this Bob you wake up and you're going to go and get yourself healthy this year so you join a gym okay this is the year you're going to get nice and healthy you buy your gym membership yep within one month normally on average that gym membership is away in the cupboard if your intention was right but there was nothing to hold you accountable to keep going with this. 
so you didn't achieve the goal you had set with yourself. Sure. Okay? Sure. So any, any sort of change that you want to take on board, it's got to have that accountability woven into it to hold people while you're re-socialising or re-normalising a way of doing things around here. The upshot of that when you do that is the level of uh, self-worth that people get to experience from what they have achieved goes from a culture of compliance or a culture of learned helplessness yep. to a culture of confidence and self-worth where the opportunities they see is different to those cultures where it's still a culture of compliance. Right. Now, you're, um, I've reached you in England at the NHS. Now, you've, you've had great success with the NHS. Could you just give us an overview of what the NHS is, the size of it, and what you've been able to achieve in there? Well, the NHS is the national health system, you know, for England, where they have um, a number of trusts, 257 trusts throughout throughout England that cater for the different counties and, um, you know, the population within those counties. So we were a number of the trusts, and it is very, very big, you know, the organisation as a whole started off uh, from Winston Churchill after the last World War, saying that one of the rewards was giving the health system for free to to the English uh, people. Yep. So um, 70 years later, uh, we've gone on, and um, there's a lot of learned helplessness in the NHS by the very way the system operates, where we've got the regulatory parties that they come in and you tell the trust what they're doing right or wrong, and once you go into special measures, it's all about what you're doing wrong rather than taking them out, you know, with, with the support they need about, you know, what they're doing right. So when we arrived at the, the trust, it was very much one of learned helplessness. People couldn't make decisions uh, anymore. Um, they were waiting to be told what needed to be done. Uh, they were harking back on all the things that they didn't do well. And, and it, was a, it wasn't a very happy place, if you like, at the, at the time. And you had very capable people in the trust, very capable, talented people inside the trust. So in the, the time that we were there, there's two departments. The, the radiology department that was um, in, in what you call a section 31, which is in special measures, which meant that they were um, not performing up to national standards and they needed additional help. Um, they are now, they've had their section 31 listed and they are being invited nationally to talk about what they did to come from a Section 31 to now be recognised as one of the better radiology departments and the processes that they are now using, you know, across the NHS system. Right. Uh, one of the other divisions, the Women's and Children's Division, who was uh, rated by the CTC, which is the regulatory agency of the worst performing division, uh, is now rated by the CTC as the best performing division. Now, what happened for these examples, if you like, that's happening in the trust, is um, through a just a, a set of behaviours of we do this by, you know, some of those that we have that they could focus on, and a framework that enabled them to start making decisions for themselves, right. um, hopes that they could do things differently, a process that they could follow that was based on building that sense of self and being able to make decisions and uh, getting, um, encouraging them that they were capable of uh, finding the solutions that they needed to work their way out of the special measures. It is incredible to watch what these teams are doing for themselves and these people. So 
They're winning national awards everywhere for the NHS. There was one as recent as last week uh, where it's gone up on the um, the national NHSI web, uh, website for having the best national process for reporting on cancer patients. Uh, the list goes on uh, and you feel the difference inside the trust with what they're doing. Now, what are they doing? They are collectively working together to achieve the shared and common goals. They've taken the focus off um, the learned help us and what we can't do and this is what's happened in the past. And now they're asking the right questions. How can we? What would we need to do? What would happen if we? And they do all of this through the lens of their four behaviours, which is we're going to do what we say we're going to do. We're going to listen. We're going to learn from everyone and then we're going to leave. We're going to do no delay every day. And we're going to work together and then we're going to celebrate those things that we have um, achieved together. And, Bob, so, that's exactly what they're doing. So when you go when you go in and you, you're talking to, say, the radiation um, department or whatever, are the, are the goals that you want achieved, they're, they're, are they set by management or are they set collectively by management and by the people working in the department? Or how does that work? got very capable people inside the division. They know what they need to do. Now they have the confidence to go out and do it and achieve it. Now the so other... it, you can never yeah. no, go on. you can management in organizations the size of these when the trust are between six thousand and fourteen thousand people, management can't be everywhere fixing everything that needs to be fixed. Sure. What they have to do is set up an environment where it enables people to make the decisions that they need to make. So, and, and that's the problem with a lot of the organisations. It's about being clear around being able to make those decisions, collectively work on that together to achieve the goals, you know, that you've got set out before you. And if we are operating in organisations that are highly personalised, which is about what's going to happen to me and why wasn't I offered that position of... Um, you know, that uh, promotion and uh, you can't come and work in my area because this is my passion or you can't achieve the purpose of the organisation or all those common goals. You can't, do, you can't achieve the opportunities unless you're prepared to come together and work together. I'm going to say something... Really basic stuff that I'm talking to. Yeah, I, I'm going to say something you probably find offensive, but um, in every... I've found that in every company, there are always people who are negative, who would not work in an iron lung, who always want to criticise, who always are downers. How do you get those people on board or do you get them out? I've always had the belief um, that uh, the only way to change people is to change people. Um, you disagree with that. Well, no, and I, I don't find what you've said offensive at all because it's a reality, Bob, but this is what happens with what we do. Right now, those negative voices mm -hmm. have uh, the ear of everyone. They're influencing what's happening across the organisation. Absolutely. So you've got to create a different movement, okay? So, this is, so you run with the people that want to create the movement that's going to create the new culture for you. So once you're creating that movement that creates the new culture, 
those people that were negative, well, to begin with, some of them actually crossed the line and then think the new culture was their idea anyway, you know, putting it together. (laughs) So they'll cross over and and then they change. But all those that don't, and there is the normal distribution, so some of them won't, but their voice no longer holds the power in the organisation. So they end up becoming the very small minority. Now, some of them just move on because they want to go and find another organisation where they can... um, uh, apply their addiction of, you know, drama, you know, to the organisation yep. or the negativity of it. Uh, they will move on, but if they do stay, they get silent because you've created a bigger movement around those things that we can collectively achieve together. It becomes right. much greater. So it silences the voice. So your your successes are well documented and they're uh, no doubt a number of people working in this area around the world getting good results. There's a lot of companies that that do good socially while running a very successful yeah. business and their, and their stories are well known. So why is the average C-suite reluctant to invest in this sort of um, initiative? Well... If you really want change across an organisation, the change has to begin from those that are leading it, Bob, too. Sure. Okay? So I think there's two things that happen. There's a couple of things that happen. One, do the leaders believe the change is possible? Probably not because they've been given a lot of promises in the past and it hasn't happened yep. for them. So I don't blame them for thinking the way that they, they think. But also people are afraid of the people's side of things and they're afraid of the effort that they think is going to be involved in having to change the people. And some of them are nervous that they're not going to be able to successfully bring about that change in people. Dealing with people and the behaviours of people they are not comfortable with. So they'd rather put in a system of technology to try to harness the people because that way they're not left having to try to work out how to deal with the change in the people. But why is it that as soon as people become leaders of an organisation, it is assumed that they are also leaders and specialists in terms of knowing how to lead people successfully? Being successful in a business doesn't mean by default that you are successful in leading people. No, I agree. And it's a hard job. I agree entirely. It's a hard job. The, The challenge that I'm putting out to everyone Is there programs that are successful with good leaders? Absolutely, beyond a shadow of a doubt. And they're all all fine. They're doing well. But there are a lot of organisations, as I said, look at the financial institutions that we've had across the world, where making money was something that they all, well, making money was something that was supposed to have done well, but that isn't always, you know, quite the case. Uh, But the workforce and the way the workforce behaves, you know, with the group think and the way the culture, you know, has has come about, that's not okay. And the challenge that we're putting out to leaders, if if we look for wise leaders, you've got to understand what constitutes a wise leader. What makes up a wise leader? What's the, not the competencies, they're a dime a dozen. What are the intrinsic attributes that make up a wise leader? What those attributes are is that they can think in terms of, they understand that if they think in terms of the greater good, then that is going to benefit everyone that's working for them, the purpose they need to achieve, and for the customer themselves. And that the success is multiple, bigger and greater than if they, you know, haven't taken into consideration, you know, and asked themselves what those questions are. So a wise leader 
makes decisions because it's in the best interest of the business, not self. Okay, is one of the ways that we measure, you know, the wisdom, the how people operate as wiser leaders. But we have to start asking different questions. We have to start asking what really constitutes a happy, productive workforce that wants to achieve together and wants to achieve the goals. We are not asking the right questions and leaders are unintentionally, and it is unintentional, but they are unintentionally reinforcing this personalisation in the workplace. And that hurts people. It doesn't promote what you need to have in the workplace, but more importantly, it harms the people and the leaders themselves. They don't realise it's happening, but until we start to understand what we have done, for instance, if you look at engagement surveys where the whole of the developed countries are using these surveys, and the content of the survey is, are you happy with your management? Are you happy with the communication? Are you happy with your colour chair? Are you happy? Are the individual happy? You're setting the person up for disappointment because an organisation cannot meet the needs of the individual people inside an organisation. So when we're asking them, what does it take for you to be happy? There is that message of, this is what I need to be happy and, and I gave you my views and opinions, but you didn't act on them. Yeah. So now I'm dissatisfied in the job and you didn't do what you said you were going to do. So what the organisations need to do is ask the right questions, refocus the people where they can work together, achieve something, got that connectedness together and it's a win-win. The people grow their self-worth in that organisation and the organisation achieves the purpose. My challenge is that from a psychological perspective, we are asking the wrong questions, Bob. We've got to ask the right questions. Sue Jauncey, thank you very much for speaking with me on the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. That's a great way to finish that interview. Now, if you'd like to find out more about Sue Jauncey and Pulse, go to pulseaustralasia.com. That's Pulse, P-U-L-S-E, Australasia. That's like Australia and Asia joined together, .com. And I'll be back with more of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking. Absolutely no bullshit business radio show on Voice America Business Network. And we're broadcasting today from the entertainment and technology hub of the world, Los Angeles, California. There are big changes in healthcare and Alphabet, Amazon, Apple and Microsoft are leading the charge. You know, they, these big tech companies, they're getting bigger and bigger and bigger. The healthcare industry is undergoing a profound transformation. You know, one looks at the healthcare industry and no matter where you go in the world, it's a mess and uh, nobody seems to be able to fix it. But they're all legacy companies. So maybe the um, technology companies can actually do something about it. Costs are skyrocketing in healthcare. Consumer demand for more accessible care is growing rapidly and healthcare companies just can't keep up. So health organisations are now increasingly turning to tech companies 
to facilitate this transformation in care delivery and lower health expenditures. The potential for tech-led digital health initiatives to help healthcare providers and insurers deliver safer, more efficient and cost-effective care is really significant because they've got massive capability as far as gathering information, sorting information. Their algorithms are incredible and they can provide huge benefits, particularly with things like double dipping and all of the excess costs that go on in healthcare. So for healthcare organisations of all kinds, the collection, analysis and application of patient data can minimise service use, improve health outcomes and promote patient independence, which can help cut swelling costs. For their part, the big four tech companies, Google Parent Alphabet, Amazon, Apple, and Microsoft, well, they see a big opportunity to tap into this lucrative healthcare market. And they're accelerating their efforts to reshape healthcare by developing and collaborating on new tools for consumers, medical professionals, and insurers. These services and solutions are creating opportunities for health systems and insurers. Tech companies' expertise in data management and analysis, it's unrivaled and they have access to everybody's information like no one else has. And their computer power is just frightening. So they can help support healthcare payers, health systems and consumers by providing a much broader overview of how healthcare is, is assessed and how it's delivered. So each of the big four tech companies, all vying for a piece of the lucrative healthcare market, They're leaning on their specific field of expertise to develop tools and solutions for consumers, providers, and payers. Alphabet, which is Google, is focused on leveraging its dominance in data storage and analytics to become the leader in population health. You think of all the information on everybody that Google has through all of its various Um, online forms. They know everything about all of us. Amazon. Amazon's using experience as a distribution platform for medical supplies. They're a big supplier of medical supplies and developing its AI-assisted Alexa as an in-home health concierge. So can't remember quite how many homes they're in, but they're in something like 45% of all American homes And they can talk to you, you can talk back, you can feed information to them, they can feed it back. And so if anything happens to anybody, Alexa is right there to help you. So that has got to be a massive benefit to people, particularly those living alone um, when a crisis develops or when um, something is needed urgently, like an ambulance or whatever. It's perfect. Apple, Apple's actively turning its consumer products into patient health hubs. Um, I was with somebody the other day who used their Apple Watch to get advice that they were having a heart attack, went straight to the hospital, and uh, they were saved because of their Apple Watch. So Microsoft is focusing on cloud storage and analytics to tap into precision medicine. You know, the more more we can target 
medicines and, and processes, then the more better outcomes we're going to get and less costs. So remember, if you're not living on the edge, you're taking up too much space. It's easier and much more rewarding to do the impossible than it is to do the ordinary. Any bastard can do the ordinary. Now, if you're always trying to be normal, you'll never know how amazing that you can be if you step out of line. So I hope you're going to join me again next Tuesday when I'll again be broadcasting from Hollywood Boulevard in the Hollywood Hills in the entertainment and technology hub of the world, Los Angeles, California. In the meanwhile, continue to be successful because the alternative to success really sucks. This is Bob Pritchard. You've been listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Please join us again next Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until then, enjoy another week of success in your business and your life.